And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Returning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, way back in January, when we began our study of Mark's gospel, I said that Mark is divided roughly into two parts. Mark 1 through Mark chapter 8, verse 33, focuses on the identity of Jesus Christ. Who is Jesus? And then Mark 8, 34, through the end of the gospel, through Mark chapter 16, focuses on his mission. Who he is, part one, what he came to do, part two. And we are at the the pivot point between those two uh, 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 headings, those two parts of the gospel. In verses 22 through 26, we're at uh, kind of the pivot point geographically. Jesus and his disciples have made their way to Bethsaida. They are north of the Sea of Galilee, northern edge of the Sea of Galilee. And from here, they are going to turn south and they're going to make their way to Jerusalem and from to Jerusalem, ultimately to the cross. So it's a pivot point. It's a transition point in the gospel geographically. It's also in verses 30 through 33, or I should say 27 through 33, a transition point or a pivot point theologically. The teaching about Jesus and his identity is now shifting to teaching about Jesus and his mission. And all along, as we've seen in Mark chapters 1 through 8, people have been missing his identity. The identity of Jesus they were getting wrong. Mark told his audience, Mark told us back at the very beginning, Mark chapter 1 verse 1, that Jesus is Son of God, Messiah, Savior. This is who Jesus is. We know as readers, but the people in context, the people who were walking with Jesus and receiving his healing ministry and hearing his teaching were missing the mark completely. The demons knew who he was, but everyone else in the story was falling just short. They were saying, some of them, saying some great things about Jesus. Some of them, of course, like the Pharisees, the religious rulers, saying that he was in league with the devil. But it isn't until here, when we get to Mark chapter 8, that we finally have someone in the story identifying Jesus as the Messiah, Peter does. 
And so Jesus pivots and begins to teach plainly about his mission. Part one, identity of Jesus is completed. Part two, mission of Jesus commences. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the anointed one of God. He is the Son of Man. He is the King who has come to die. Who has come to suffer. And for Peter and for the disciples and everyone else that we're going to read throughout the rest of the book until the very end, Jesus' identity is still clouded because his mission is incomprehensible. How is it that the Messiah could come to die? How is it that the mission of the Messiah could possibly involve a cross? And we struggle in the same way. We, we have an idea of the identity of Jesus, and, and we have, by God's grace, we have the story. You know, we, we understand the mission of Jesus to go to the cross, and so we understand the identity and mission of Jesus when it comes to our own salvation. By God's grace, we see these things with the eyes of faith and we believe. It's when it comes to the mission of Jesus Christ in terms of our sanctification that we start to say, time out. Is this really the path that you would have us follow in order for us to be transformed into your image, Lord Jesus? Are we really supposed to have our lives characterized by the cross as well? His mission to save us is clear. His mission to sanctify us, to make us like him, isn't. For us, like the disciples in this text, there is this ongoing struggle with unbelief. So that is going to be the overarching theme when we pick up our study in January. We're taking a break between now and the beginning of 2021. Lord willing, we will pick up with uh, part two of Mark's gospel then. But now as we come to the end of part one, we are going to look at three things from this text. First, we're going to see a living parable about spiritual blindness. A living parable about spiritual blindness. That's verses 22 through 26. Second, we're going to see the root of our spiritual blindness. That's verses 31 through 33. And then we're going to see, third, an invitation to truly see. And that's in the center section, verses 27 through 30. So, a living parable about spiritual blindness, the root of our spiritual blindness, and then third, an invitation to truly see. But first, let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come to this portion of your word, we are thankful for it. We pray, O oh God, that the words that we're looking at on the page would, by your Spirit, penetrate our hearts that we might, just not, might not just see, but see and believe. And for some of us who may be here or may be watching, see and believe for the very first time. And for those of us who by your grace have been following you for a long time, God, would you further cement these truths to our hearts. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Alright, so first a living parable about spiritual blindness. And we see this in the actual healing of this man. This really happened. So I use the word parable, but I emphasize the word living parable. It's an enacted parable. 
purpose of the parable is twofold. It is to heal this blind... I'm sorry, the purpose of the healing is twofold. It is to heal this blind man, but it is also to give us a picture of the progressive sight of the disciples as we make our way through Mark's gospel. So, these friends bring this man to Jesus in verse 22 and following. Some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? So again, we, we saw this with the healing of the, um, the man who was deaf and had a speech impediment earlier in chapter 8. Jesus graciously accommodates his work to their infirmity. We know from earlier in Mark that Jesus can speak and things will happen. He can speak a word and a legion of demons will be cast out of a man. He doesn't need to touch this man. He doesn't need to use saliva and mud, which were things that in that culture, you know, would have understood it. But for us, of course, it's kind of confusing. The point is that Jesus was taking this man who was blind and using his hands and his touch, helping him to understand what he was doing for him. Jesus tenderly heals this man. He does it in stages. So, you know, we get to the middle of the, of the account. He says in verse 23, Do you see anything? And the man looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. This is my go-to joke when I talk about my own vision. You know, when it's like beyond halfway in the pew, people ask, what do you see? I see people like trees walking. You know, I know there are people back there. I can't really tell what they're doing. So this is the man. I see people like trees walking. Maybe it was his friends. I mean, Jesus led this man out of town. These friends had a burden for this man. Oh, Jesus, will you touch him? If you'll touch him, he'll be healed. And Jesus takes him and tenderly, I I picture Jesus holding this man's hand, walking him out of town. His friends following him. The the man looking up, and, and perhaps it was his friends who were there, and he sees them like trees walking, and then Jesus touches the man's eyes. And he sees. In verse 25, we get this multiplication of words. It's like, it's like Mark, you know, actually Peter, of course, is talking to Mark and having Mark write down what he's saying. So Peter, who was there on the scene, uses in verse 25 three phrases and nine terms that just drive home the point that this man who was blind could see. And he looked up and said, I see people, verse 24, like trees walking. Then verse 25, then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored. He saw everything clearly. Now, we could spend an entire sermon on this passage, but let me just make some quick application. And I want to make that quick application by pointing out the friends. This man did not, from what we can tell, this man did not ask them to take him to Jesus. They brought him to Jesus, and then they begged Jesus earnestly to heal their friend. And so in these friends, I think we see the kind of friends that we ought to be. The kind of parents to unbelieving children. The kind of children to unbelieving parents. The kind of worker to unbelieving co-workers. The kind of neighbor to unbelieving neighbors. The kind of friend to unbelieving friends. Will we 
earnestly. Beg Jesus for their healing, for their salvation. Will we bring them to Jesus, either bringing them to Jesus in prayer or bringing them to Jesus by bringing them to church or giving them the link so they can watch online by sharing the good news about Jesus? Will we earnestly bring them to Jesus? And then, of course, these friends just expected Jesus to heal with a touch. What's... What's the trip out of town about? Why two stages? And the application there for us is we should not presume upon how Jesus will bring salvation to those around us. He works in mysterious ways. He may not work in the life of your friend or your family member or your coworker the way that he worked in your life. Be praying that he'll work and bring your friends to him for salvation. Now, but the question is, how do we know that this is ultimately about spiritual blindness? How do we know that this real healing that took place had a deeper purpose to be a parable, if you will, concerning the disciples' spiritual blindness? And I think it's because of the way Mark organizes the text and where he places this healing in the overall narrative. We saw back in chapter 8 verse 18 in that passage where Jesus is providing the warning to the disciples about the leaven of the Pharisees. In verse 18 of chapter 8 he says, "Why, Having eyes do you not see? And having ears do you not hear? The disciples have been spiritually blind. They're so at risk of of falling away from Jesus as his disciples that he has to warn them about the very leaven of the Pharisees. And still, they think he's talking about bread. They're blind up to this point. But in the passage that we're about to read, Peter, characteristically speaking for the twelve, says, you are the Messiah. They, they see, but then immediately, Peter doesn't see. And, and for the rest, of course, these, these people all abandoned him at the cross. So it's almost as if they're stuck between stage one and stage two. They're, they're not ultimately going to see until after the resurrection. And so what we get in this healing of this blind man is a picture of the disciples ongoing spiritual blindness. They see in part. But the rest of the gospel will show us how spiritually blind they remain. So let's move on then and talk about the root of their and our spiritual blindness. Because Jesus points it out very clearly in verses 31 through 33. So let's read it together. Verse 31, And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Now let's stop there for a second. We cannot understand as completely as they would have understood how disjointing this statement would have been. You know what a non sequitur is, right? This doesn't follow that. This would have been the non sequitur of non sequiturs for any Jewish person listening. The Son of Man must, and you know, what ought to follow is rule, triumph, 
Win. Drive out those Roman oppressors. Restore the kingdom of God to Israel. Be the one who is seated on David's throne forever as promised in 2 Samuel chapter 7. That's what should have followed the Son of Man. Because the Son of Man is language drawn from Daniel chapter 7. This is the divine cosmic ruler who will sit on David's throne forever. The Son of Man must suffer? This can't follow that. You know, in the call to worship, I, I put our call to worship together in such a way so that we would read it, and, and we read it and we say, well, of course, Psalm 2, Jesus is King. Of course, Psalm 110, verse 1, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And uh, Isaiah 53, yes, praise God, he's borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Well, the disciples had those passages as well. But it just didn't hit home. This is the non sequitur of all non sequiturs. The Old Testament foretold it. What they didn't see is that his mission required it. That word must. The heart of the Gospels in that word must. The Son of Man must. Not will. It's if I'm here to do one thing, but this is what's going to happen and I can see it coming. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. These things must happen. Why? Because in order to rule, his subjects must be reconciled to God. And the only way that we can be reconciled to God is if Jesus prays, pays the price for our debt, absorbs the cost in order for us to be forgiven. Paul in Romans chapter 5, verse 10 tells us that while we were yet enemies, God reconciled us to Him in Christ. Jesus paid the price for our reconciliation. In order for him to be the cosmic ruler who had subjects who gladly followed him. Carl prayed about this earlier. We are gladly and graciously citizens of the kingdom of God and members of his church on earth. That would not happen if while we were still enemies, which is what we would still be apart from God's grace, Jesus had not laid down his life for our salvation. The Son of Man, the cosmic king must suffer. The heart of the gospel is in that one word, must. And so we get to Peter's rebuke and I think we feel it a little bit more acutely. Verse 32, he said this plainly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. It's interesting that word rebuke is the same word that's used to describe Jesus rebuking the wind and the waves and, and Jesus rebuking the unclean spirits. Peter's now rebuking Jesus and it says that he began to rebuke him. So I feel a lecture coming on here. Peter's pulling Jesus aside and saying, Listen, Jesus, you got this all wrong. I mean, think this through. And Jesus says, Get behind me, Satan. In the temptation in the wilderness, in, Mark, in Matthew chapter 4, Satan had essentially said to Jesus, you can have the crown without the cross. 
You can have the glory without the suffering. Peter's doing the same thing here. Jesus, come on. You can have the glory. You can have the crown. Why the suffering? Surely, surely you're misreading the Old Testament, Jesus. And then we get to the root of our spiritual blindness. Verse 33, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. This is what it means to wrestle with ongoing spiritual blindness in our lives. It's having our minds set on the things of man and not on the things of God. It's getting Colossians 3 verse 2 reversed. Instead of having our minds set on heavenly things and not on things below, we have our minds set on things below and not on heavenly things. And so we fail to see. Oh, we see Jesus as our Messiah. We see Jesus as our Savior. We know He went to the cross. We know He rose. We know He's coming again. But in that interim period, oh, we struggle to keep our eyes on the things of God. We struggle to see that His way for us is to follow His way. We fail to see that there's no glory without suffering. We fail to see that there's no crown without bearing a cross. We set our eyes on the things of man and not on the things of God. So then we come third to this invitation to truly see. It's in verses 27 through 30. Take a look. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. Others say Elijah, and others the prophets. Again, kind of the you know general vibe was Jesus is a pretty good guy, but nobody was saying Jesus is God. And so then Jesus turns to the disciples and says, Who do you say that I am? He asked them. So Jesus is looking at the twelve and he says, Who do you say that I am? And Peter, and again I don't have time to take you through Matthew and Mark and show you the ways in which Peter represents the disciples. But Peter, speaking for the disciples, says, You are the Messiah. You're the Messiah. I see it. I see who you are. Oh, we know that Peter sees what he doesn't see. But just for the moment, recognize what Peter is truly seeing. This is the Messiah. This is the Savior. The Son of God. The Christ. Christ, again, the Greek word that's used to translate the Hebrew word for Messiah. This is who Jesus is. That question, who do you say that I am, is the question that every one of us have to answer. If you are not a follower of Jesus Christ, let me beg you to take that question and make it your mission to arrive at the answer. Who is Jesus? It is so easy to reject Christianity because of the, the home you were raised in or the kind of church you went to or all those you know, uh, false teachers who are looking for money on TV or, or all the abuse that's happening in the Catholic church and in Protestant churches. And, and, and we can always find reasons to reject Christianity because our representatives are so fallen. The question that needs to be asked and answered 
fundamentally for every person is who is Jesus. Is he who he says he is? Did he do what the Gospels said that he came to do? Because if the answer to that is yes, then that changes everything. Changes everything. And if the answer to that is no, then with the Apostle Paul, we are wasting our time. That question is the invitation to truly see. Who do people say that I am? Who do you say that I am? People have answered that question in all kinds of different ways throughout history. Mikhail Gorbachev called Jesus the first socialist. Adolf Hitler saw in Jesus one who would fight for the world. Mormons consider Jesus to be the physical son of a union between Jehovah God and Mary. Jehovah's Witnesses consider him to be an exalted creator, created being. Muslims consider Jesus to be a great prophet of Allah, second only to Muhammad. New Age religions consider Jesus a fully enlightened human being. Plenty of people consider Jesus to be either a great moral teacher or a great example of love and mercy. But who do you say that he is? Let the way that you answer that question be based on what Jesus has said that he is and what Jesus has said that he came to do. Like for the blind man and the disciples, sight is a gift from the Lord. Sight is a gift from the Lord. If we see at all, which we see imperfectly, but if we see Jesus with the eyes of faith at all, it is because of God's gracious initiative toward us. In Matthew's account of Peter's confession of Jesus as the Messiah, Jesus responded by saying, Blessed are you, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Jesus said in John chapter 8, I am the light of the world. I have come to bring light to those who walk in darkness. Drawing from Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 2. Jesus is the one who graciously is the light that gives us the ability to see. And so with the Apostle Paul... We know that God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. If we see Jesus for who he is, it is entirely because of God's grace. But know that God's grace toward us doesn't involve only the grace that enables us to see by faith and believe. It also includes the fact that he sees us. From the cross, he saw us. Isaiah chapter 53 says, When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. From the cross, he saw all those for whom he would lay down his life. He sees us even now. The author of Hebrew tells us that God never will leave us, never will he forsake us. Though our eyes fall to other things, his eyes are never off of you. So turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. The things of COVID and the things of economic uncertainty and the things of cancer and dementia and the, the things that, that plague us that are temporary. 
will go strangely dim in the light of his wonderful face. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you again, and we ask that by your grace, you would lift our hearts, that you lift our eyes, that you would enable us to, by faith, fix our gaze upon that glorious horizon, anticipating that day in which you, Lord Jesus, return and finish what you have started, the redemption of all things, that we might enjoy perfect fellowship with you and with one another on an earth that has been restored and made new. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.